Well, good morning, everyone. So glad to have you here to worship with us today. Uh, we're on week eight of our series in David, and uh, just can't wait to dive in. So uh, with that being said, we're going to be reading 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, then verses 27 through 29. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the name of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my, over my people, Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declared to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from, from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Lord Almighty, God of Israel, you revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build the house for you. So your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. Sovereign Lord, you are God. Your covenant is trustworthy, and you have promised these good things to your servant. Now be pleased to bless the throne of your servant, that it may continue forever in your sight. For you, Sovereign Lord, have spoken, and with your blessing, the house of your servant will be blessed forever. In the movie Facing the Giants, Grant Taylor has been the high school football coach of a Christian school for the last six years. He's living in a rundown house with an amazing Buick that uh, most of the time you have to push to get started. And after years of struggling to have children with his wife, Brooke, he finally builds up the courage to go to the doctor and find out what's going on. Now, as all this is happening, uh, during his lowest point in the movie, 
He happened to be at school late one night and overheard a secret meeting of parents who were petitioning for him to be fired. Many of them said he was dead weight and incapable of winning. He had originally been hired six years ago to turn around the program, but now things seem worse than they ever did before. The school hasn't had a winning season since, and so they felt the program would be better in somebody else's hands. But the biggest blow was when he overheard one of his closest friends and his assistant coach, Brady, chime in by saying, sometimes I think Grant could do a better job building up the program. But then there are other times where I think he's doing the best he can. And then another parent chimed in by saying, Brady, you should be our coach. Grant, of course, goes home devastated. And as he starts sharing all these details with his wife, one of the most stinging quotes he says is, Brooke, I can't provide you a decent home. I can't provide you a decent car. I'm a failing coach with a losing record, and I can't give you the children you want. The problem is me. Like everything else, we can't have our own children because of me. What's God doing? Why is everything so hard? Have you ever felt like that? Where you've had your dreams that you were convinced would happen, but things didn't turn out the way you expected. You're not quite the person you'd hope you'd be by now. Your career didn't excel as you wanted. As a stay-at-home mom, desperate to do more, maybe you've wondered if God has put you on the shelf of life. Maybe at times you've wondered if you've missed out on once-in-a-lifetime opportunities. And beating yourself up, you question, why didn't I finish school? Or why didn't I pursue that relationship? Why did I choose to go down this path rather than that path? And in your lowest moments, you've wondered, did I marry the right person? Other times, our disappointments come during major life transitions. After 18 plus years of of raising our children, most of of our lives spent pouring into them, and they leave. Now what do we do? Or we've just retired or... We're close to it, and we're struggling to find a sense of purpose. What does life look like beyond what I've done for 30 years? The widow or widower asks the same question. Have you ever had times in your life where you had plans of being or doing more, and yet God said no, and it has marked your life ever since? Meaning almost like a filter, you can't help but see everything in light of the goals you failed to reach. And you have been shaped by your disappointments. I find that the greatest hole in people's lives is the person I could have been. That certainly has been true in my life. And I find the older I get, the more that's the case. One of the most daunting verses I came across is, A young Christian was Proverbs 16, 9, which says, In their hearts, human plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Now you read that and and you may think, well, what's the point of making any plans at all? But the point of the verse is this. If my plans aren't in line with his, his plans will ultimately win out. 
Okay then, how do I determine what his plans are? How often are we asking, what's God's will for my life? From the time we're 18 considering where we should go to college to when we're 80 at the brink of maybe a nursing home, we are constantly wondering, what's God have for me next? And I'm convinced that if you don't have a way of discerning what God may be trying to do in your life, especially when it's different than what you expected, you will be shattered by his nose. Confused, you'll be paralyzed by frustration, which will make you sadly truly miss out on all that God has in store for you. Because when God says no to your plans, it's always to accomplish his greater yes. I think we see this through David in three ways, three ways of discerning God's will for our lives. First, we take time to hear God's voice. Second, we seek godly counsel. And lastly, third, we ultimately need to take the step of trusting God's leading. When it comes to taking time to hear what God has to say, notice in verse one, we're told, after the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. This is the first time in years that David is not either on the battlefield or running for his life from Saul. You can imagine the amount of stress it puts on you being on the run and fearing for your life. You rarely have a bed to sleep on, and even if you did, you're always sleeping with one eye open because you're never quite sure who you can trust. David had spent most of his adult life up to this point constantly on the run, knowing that if he slipped just once, that could be the end of him. And so when you hear that, he, he has rest here. It's a huge deal. It's not a throwaway statement. The writer of this scripture wants us to know this sets up what's about to happen next. David's life has been at a frenetic pace. And yet now he finally has a chance to consider what God may have for him next. The Pew Research Center found that in 2018, 60% of adults felt that they were too busy to enjoy life. When researching parents with children under the age of 18, they found that number went up to 74%. A fair number of people felt between social media and responsibilities at work, technology overload. Seven out of 10 teenagers between the ages of 13 to 17, struggle with anxiety and depression because of the pressure to get good grades and keep up with all their activities. Three out of 10 say they feel pressure all day long. We live in a culture that's living at an unsustainable pace. If you're younger, you might have multiple jobs that you run back and forth between where your hours are all over the place you live on little to no sleep. And when you finally get a moment off, you use that to catch up with friends. And so you are always wiped out and barely holding it together. Those a little older who are trying to get more established in their careers will work countless hours to climb the ranks. There's never a shift or job they're not willing to take. Uh, young married couples are trying to find a home and, and then constantly having to fix that home. 
Parents are running from recitals to practice for their kids. The point is, we're too busy to ever get a moment to breathe. We're like hamsters running on a wheel. And the moment we sit down at night, we pass out in exhaustion. But it's when we're able to finally rest and get alone with God, where we can pour over his word, that we start thinking bigger than the moment. That life itself is not just about you or me. And he reveals the things to us that we would never see if we didn't take time to listen. See, that's where dreaming happens. That's where you start getting a God-sized vision for your life. And you start to picture how he may want to use you to bring glory to his name in ways you have never before imagined. That's what happened to David here. When he finally got a moment to think of everything the Lord has brought him through, he wonders, how can I ever repay God for what he's done? And so he says to the prophet Nathan in verse 2, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. David felt like God deserved better. And the mention of cedar here, the most valuable wood at that time, hints that David intends to build God the most beautiful temple that anyone had ever seen. You know how dreams are. Rarely do they spring up in the moment. By the time you build up the courage to start talking about it, you've been daydreaming about it for a while. Almost like a plant, it buds. You get excited initially about it. And then it gets roots that get deeper and deeper until you have to share it with others. When you become passionate about something, you've seen this with whatever it is you want to do. It starts to ooze out of you. You have to tell someone. All of a sudden, it's all you talk about. So who knows how long David's been thinking about this. But one thing's for sure. This has become the desire of his heart. And he's finally had the time to see it. Have you given God time to show you what he may have for you? If you're younger, it will never happen until you commit to it. Make it a point to get alone with God daily. But one thing I found especially helpful is to get away from everyone for a couple of hours, at least once a month, and only bring a Bible and a journal to see what God may say to you. However frankly, frequently more so you want to do it, I would challenge you, block out a couple hours on your calendar intentionally to listen to God once in a while. But for those of us who are older, uh, maybe empty nesters or on the brink of retirement, the issue for you may not be uh, so much making time than it is more so wanting to take the time. If you're in a place where whenever you look back at life, all you see are your disappointments, like maybe I should have spent more time with the kids, or you think of all the things that you never got to do at work. If these are the only things that cycle through your mind whenever you get a chance to rest, then the thought of doing this is like going to the dentist. There's a part of you that can't bear the thought of another unfulfilled dream. And so you may be tempted to run from this to avoid another heartbreak. I saw this in my father's life right after he had a stroke. 
Before that, he was one of the most hardworking people I knew. At that time, he was in his mid-60s and would have easily kept working if he could have. But then that stroke happened, and he was rendered unable to use the right side of his body. It's almost like he lost a part of himself. Life has never been the same since. And you've probably seen this with your own parents. They go through a state as they start to feel their mortality where they feel completely helpless. Everything they've been defined by prior to that point is slowly being ripped away. Their job, their home, their driver's license, any sense of independence is starting to be pulled from them and they don't know how to handle it. So they hold on to the past as much as they can They refuse to give up their license. They're not moving out of their home because it's the only thing they still have left. Those feelings start to rise up the moment you cross the threshold of your kids leaving home or retirement. And it's scary. I don't care who you are or how confident you may be. When you get to that place in your life, it can be terrifying. But how you respond to this moment as we'll talk about later on, will determine or will be determined by how much you trust that God knows what he's doing with your life. That when God says no, it's to accomplish his greater yes. But see, you can never see his purpose for your life moving forward until you take the time to listen. But along with doing that, we need to seek godly counsel. Now, Nathan was the king's advisor. As a prophet, Nathan was a man that David looked to a lot and who could always count or or who he could always count on to give him solid advice. And so you can almost picture uh, this as a casual conversation between two friends where one shares his dream with the other who sincerely supports him like any friend would. The plan seemed logical. The gods of every other nation had temples. None of them had to be intense like this. It only seemed like the natural step to take. And so Nathan says in verse three, whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it for the Lord is with you. David doesn't just go off on his own and do this, but he turns to someone in Nathan who he trusted to give him godly advice. Someone who God has used to speak to David countless times. He confides in a friend. God uses mature believers to speak into our lives. I hope even now as I say that, you can think of friends here or in your life in general who you aspire to be like in Christ. And you give them opportunities to speak words of encouragement to you or to gently challenge you. I hope that you seek out that on a regular basis. But it's especially important to have a community you gather with regularly or or like a life group who might be able to see a little clearer what God is doing in your life when you can't. Brothers and sisters who can keep you grounded in trusting him as you wrestle with the nose of God. Not those who feed discouragement with their own cynical views of life. It's easy to find that. But those who aren't easily shaken by trials and who can help you sift through these times of questioning. But as we see with Nathan, it's important to remember as we seek out advice or give it, we're not the voice of God. Listen, 
Nathan was a man of God whose profession was to hear God speak and tell people verbatim what God said. If anyone could be trusted with advice, it would be him. Yet even he, he got ahead of himself by telling David to go ahead with building the temple because he's not God. Rather, he's only a, a conduit, the means by which God would get his message across to David. In the same way, our words are not as authoritative as God's. And even with the best intentions, they may not be in sync with his. How often does one friend seeing the other suffer say, in a well-meaning but hasty way, you just need to leave that job. Or this person isn't right for you. You deserve better. When they might, That may not be God's will for them. But because they hate to see their friend hurting as we all do, they do whatever it takes to get them out of that position. Or how often has a friend expressed a dream that may be a little risky? They want to move to a place where they have no family or connections. And deep down inside, we see this, that, that the dots just don't seem to be connecting here at all. But because we don't want to disappoint them, we may be tempted to nod in approval. See, we need friends with the courage of convictions to tell us the truth and who seek God's will with us, not for us. They come into agreement with us to humbly seek God with you, leaning on his word and truth to speak into our lives. And we have a great example of that through Nathan here, who when he realized he got it wrong, makes it right. And as we dive into the message that God wanted Nathan to pass on to David, the heart is reminding David who God is. The word I is said 21 times in this vision, relating to what God has done and plans to do among both David and his people's lives. First, he says, David will not build his house because he is God. He is a God who has dwelt among his people. In verses five through seven, he explains, go and tell my servant, David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Throughout the years, God hasn't been confined to a temple like other gods so that he could be with his people. From the time he redeemed Israel out of Egypt and they traveled in the wilderness, wandering from place to place, surrounded by enemies, God traveled with them, leading them in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. Because like a mother with her infant, he wanted to watch over and protect them. He tells Moses in Exodus 33, 14, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Throughout every season, no matter where they were or what they've done, God has always worked with his people or walked more so with his people. Even throughout the last 20 years, as the ark was displaced, God has always been with his people. Similarly, uh, we need people to remind us that God hasn't abandoned us in the midst of discouragement, nor is he indifferent in saying no to us. 
but rather he walks with us through it. And he grieves over our losses with us. I always think of Mary falling before Jesus when her brother Lazarus dies. And heartbroken cries, Jesus, if you were here, he wouldn't have died. Yet after one of the simplest, most profound verses is written in John eleven thirty five, 35, you know it. Jesus wept, even though all authority is in his hands. And he knows that within minutes, he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. His heart is moved toward compassion, seeing Mary suffer. And as mysterious as God's ways may be, there is one thing you should never doubt as you struggle with his nose, his love. He is not distant and aloof as other gods, though this makes no sense right now, the situation you may be going through. He is with you and for you, and he is looking to lift up those who turn to him. Second, God also wants David to remember where he has brought him from. In verses 8 through 9a, he says, I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. God reminding David of all that he's done, all that he's brought him through is a subtle reality check. Though David is king and has the means to build him a beautiful temple, God is the provider in this relationship. He's the one who ran after David when he had nothing. As a poor shepherd boy whose family wasn't of noble birth, David had no chance of even getting a whiff of the throne without God's help. The gods of other nations call their people to fearfully work for them, to earn their acceptance. Temples and shrines were built to earn favor with their gods. And yet God wanted David to realize that he works on behalf of his people so that they can come to him freely. And so he recounts his history of grace towards David so that David would know you can't earn your place in God's heart but he will give it to those who will receive it. One of the greatest struggles people have when God says no to their plans is wondering what they might have done wrong to deserve this. Burdened by guilt, they wonder, why did my kid walk away from Christ? Why did my marriage fall apart? Why did my loved one die? And to make matters worse, they come across people like Job's friends who assume, well, that must be the case, claiming, why else would God not bless you? He blesses all of his children who listen to him. Now look, yes, when we walk in obedience, you receive the benefits of that. And there are consequences to disobedience. But that's never to say that what happens in your life will ultimately be determined by what you do or don't do for God, because that's contrary to who he is. He works on behalf of his people. He could do nothing to earn or, or benefit him, but receive his grace. See, sometimes he allows trials into our lives for unforeknown reasons. Sometimes he says no to healing or, or helping us find the spouse we always hope for. And we need people who remind us in those times that we are still chosen by God. 
that this isn't a sign of him rejecting us, nor do we need to re-earn his love. As Romans 8.32 reminds us, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? We serve a God of grace. And so third, God's promise to build David a house instead, saying in verses uh, 13 through 15, and when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build the house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with rod, with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Although God doesn't allow David to build his temple, he makes him a promise that would extend past his lifetime. In one sense, he talks, he's talking about David's immediate heir to, to the throne, Solomon. But in another sense, he's pointing to the only one who could ever fulfill such a covenant. One who not only walked before God perfectly, but would usher in the kingdom that will reign forever, where all the lost will be redeemed. All the fractures of life will be put back together. And as C.S. Lewis put it, all the wrongs will be undone. And we're, although we know in part, one day we will know fully why God has weaved certain heartaches into our lives. It's like a dime. As little as it is, the closer you bring it to your eye, the harder it is to see past it. That's often what happens to us when we wrestle with what God's doing. We can't see past the frustration of that. And what the kingdom does is, is put things into their proper perspective so that we remember the long view, what God is trying to accomplish in us, that we're not defined by our disappointments, but rather we are being shaped by them for eternity. But how often do we forget without a friend to remind us? Finally, we trust God's leading. God doesn't tell David immediately why he can't build his temple. And he had to struggle with this. I'm sure he did. He admits towards the end of his life to his people in 1 Chronicles 28, uh, verses 2 through 3. Listen to me, my fellow Israelites, my people. I had it in my heart to build a house as a place of rest for the ark of the covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made plans to build it. But God said to me, you are not to build a house for my name because you are a warrior and have shed blood. And even though David accepted God's plan here, uh, you can tell that this uh, was one of those dreams that didn't die easy, easily. He never stopped thinking about it. He went as far as he could to, to go without building it himself. He made blueprints, as these verses tell us. First uh, Chronicles 29 tells us that he gathered all the material he needed to build it. And when a person is doing that, you can tell they still are chomping at the bit to do this. Yet what kept him from crossing the line 
As king, he could have easily justified just going through with this and convince himself that since he was doing this for God, God would eventually be okay with it. We see this all the time. People marry someone they know they shouldn't. They ignore all the red flags because they want to be happy or cut corners at work that compromise their integrity. Because when you work so hard to get within reach of what you want, the unwritten rule in our world is get it at whatever cost. Just do it and ask for forgiveness later. But what made David a man after God's own heart was he was sensitive to the voice of God. But how? Gratitude helped David accept God's plan. David responds to God's vision by acknowledging in verse 28 on all that God has done in his life. He's amazed that God would reveal these future blessings to him and claims there is no God like him who personally redeems his people, saying in verse 24, you, was, you have established your people, Israel, as your very own forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. David is overwhelmed with God's faithfulness because he's able to see that God said no to accomplish his greater yes. Have you ever considered what doors God is open by saying no to other areas in your life? What things uh, you were able to do in people's lives that maybe you wouldn't have been able to do? What relationships you were able to build? Who God has used maybe to bring you along or bring healing into your life in a time that you were most vulnerable? How has your life changed for the good by God's nose? The mother who puts her career on hold or derails it altogether to raise her children. What impact has that had on them? The people who didn't get the job or promotion they always dreamed of, how much more present are they able to be in other ways to their family and friends? Maybe it's the move that didn't happen. The child that didn't come may have opened a door for you to give an orphan hope or to be spiritual parents to others. The spouse that you hope would be in your life right now may have freed up the opportunity for you to serve God in ways that wouldn't be possible. I know for Holly and I, losing our parents at an early age has given us compassion for those who have loved ones battling cancer or parents that have dementia. It gave us the capacity to love people in ways we just couldn't before. Though God may say no, to some of the things we desperately desire, there are so many other ways he says, yes. All this is determined by how you respond when he changes the course in your life. Will you let frustration paralyze you or you praise him for what he has done and what he's looking to do? But along with gratitude, David also embraced God's purpose for him. God, in essence, told David that the reason he couldn't build the temple is because he's a warrior and a leader, not a builder. He says back in verse 9, Now I'll make your name great like the names of the greatest men on the earth. We see in chapter 8 that David continued his military dominance. All the nations surrounding them feared him to the point where peace extended into Solomon's reign all because David received God's plan for him and poured himself into it. After Saul, the people needed stability. 
They needed someone who clung to the Lord and brought peace to their land. They needed someone like David to lay a spiritual foundation. But later on, with Solomon, they needed someone to build on what David had started by strategically creating infrastructure for the land. Uh, Many of Saul's building projects created jobs for people. He had a knack for organization and, and putting people in the right place. Both were used by God mightily, but in different ways. It's in cooperating with God's plan that David got to experience the fullness of God's blessing. That's just as true for us. Sometimes the issue in our lives and And why we feel so restless is us simply not accepting who and what God wants us to be. God empties us to to fill us with something else, but only when we let go of the old. Biblical commentator Alan Redpath put it this way, the vision need never have been in vain, even though it remains unfulfilled, for God's refusal in life are loaded with immeasurable possibilities. Of blessing. God gives us specific gifts and experiences to be used in certain ways, but sometimes we can be so fixated on what we want to do that we lose sight of what He's made us to be. And our dreams get ahead of God's calling for our lives. But even with that being said, it's not always as clear as it is here for David what God may be trying to do in our lives. That's why it's so important to take time to hear God's voice in our lives and let that be confirmed by godly counsel of others. These are guardrails from getting ahead of ourselves. But I think Henry Blackaby offers some great advice also we need to consider. Um, In his study, Experiencing God, he says, watch to see where God is working and get behind it. Well, that's true for our lives personally as well. We need to respond to where we see God working. Sometimes the issue in our lives and why we feel so restless is us simply not accepting who and what God wants you to be. On the other hand, when we do, everything falls into place. Recently on Caitlin Elliott's podcast, So What Else, uh, Pastor Davey Blackburn, who has had his wife tragically shot during a burglary, burglary, shared his story. And how God had used the most tragic moments in his life to form a ministry now where he helps to heal others. He mentioned how he was struggling with his faith at first, naturally, and said to God, everything I believe about you now seems false. But then he acknowledged ultimately he was holding God to his expectations. He said, a God who is subject to me is not God. It's something I fabricated. Do I trust God for who he is and only to the extent or only to the extent of what he does for me? Do I worship him for who he is? While in the hospital with his wife, who was on life support at that point, he mentions at one point he turned on Pandora, knowing his wife loved to listen to elevation worship. And at random, a song came on called Nothing is wasted. And Davy knew that was God's way of letting them know that though this is not going to end the way that he wanted, that he wasn't going to waste this. God wasn't going to waste this. And this has become the calling card 
of his ministry. Through any season of life you may be in right now, you need to know that when God says no to your plans, it's always to accomplish his greater yes. Lord Jesus, we trust in this, that nothing is wasted in our lives. We may be experiencing things right now that we feel are completely meaningless. Pain, heartache, loss. Lord, we may feel like our life is going nowhere compared to where we thought it would be. And yet, Lord, you reach down in our hopelessness and you extend your hand to us. You are God who wants to be with your people. And so I do pray right now that we would understand that in your grace, you are extending yourself towards us. And Father, I pray that if we need to, we'd allow your love to just shower over us in a new and fresh way. And we would trust that you have another door you're trying to open if we'd let you walk us through it. So we trust you and we love you for all you've done in Jesus Christ. Amen.